I think you, you won't find it in uh, the bulletin this morning. That's my fault. I forgot to give them the information, so you can fire me, if you will. Um, too soon. Haggai chapter 2 for Old Testament lesson. Verses 1 to 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, saying this, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house, speaking of the temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out from Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, as you see here in your bulletin, we also have a New Testament reading from Second Corinthians chapter 4. Here we are given one facet of the ministry of the word, something that I think overlaps well with what we'll see as we give our attention to Hebrews 12 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 6. It's Paul speaking under inspiration of the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And now our sermon text this morning coming to us from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the same time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is to say the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, as we approach your throne of grace this morning, we recognize that the only way in which we are able to stand and bear under your word is because we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. So we confess that you are a holy God, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in all that you are and all that you have determined to do. And as you are that consuming fire of holiness, we ask that you would purge our hearts by your word and cleanse us by your spirit, that we might be diligent to hear our Savior speak from heaven. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what is preaching? I think it's a question that many of us uh, don't give much attention to. One that we might take for granted is preaching simply uh, the Christian equivalent of a, of a TED Talk. Is it a call to social activism? Is it simply uh, an extended Bible lecture every Sunday morning? You know, at first glance, a sermon might not seem too different from uh, any other uh, famous speech. You think of the powerful speeches of old, be it Lincoln at Gettysburg or, or Churchill after Dunkirk, or even Martin Luther King in Washington, D.C., we recognize the weight of so many speeches, they are those speeches that we heard and had to memorize in school, and rightfully so, they, they bear their own weight and merit their own study. They are powerful. In fact, some might even say that those speeches are earth-shattering. But none of these speeches have ever shook the heavens. The sermon's different, however. Here, in this passage this morning, we will give our attention not only to the one who speaks on earth, but one who speaks from heaven. And by his speech, shakes the heavens and the earth. This passage this morning, I think, has much to say about the nature of preaching. As you recall from a few weeks ago, we've entered into the second half of Hebrews chapter 12, focusing on what happens when the new covenant people of God enter and assemble for worship. We've not it's simply uh, uh, gathered together between the four walls of Bethel Presbyterian Church, but we have ascended the heights of Zion itself. And so the nature of preaching, the nature of the ministry of the Word is distinct even under the New Covenant. And I'd like us to consider three facets of the nature of preaching highlighted in this particular passage. The first we'll see in verses 25 and 26, and we can simply call it warning. We'll consider our second facet of faithful preaching in verse 27. So we might call it weak foundations, the exposing of those weak foundations. And finally, verses 28 and 29, that of worship. So warning, weak foundation, and worship. And I hope to explain what I mean by those as we work our way through this passage. But the very first thing that we see is this, that preaching warns of the coming judgment You see that in verses 25 and 26. Note the imperative that's given here. Do not refuse him who is speaking. This whole letter, this whole written sermon, as the book of Hebrews likely is, is concerned with the very speech of God. Long ago, many ways and a variety of times by the prophets God spoke, but in these last days he has spoken qualitatively differently. He has spoken by his son. 
Thus begins the whole sermon itself, and every chapter emphasizes chapter two. Do not, therefore, we must give closer attention to the things that we have heard. Chapter three, because the one who speaks is not simply Moses on earth, but Christ from heaven. Chapter four, do not harden your hearts as Israel did of old. For we have a high priest, chapters five to ten, who has entered into the throne of grace to make intercession. And now chapter twelve, he is the one who speaks as our ascended Savior, has taken his seat of authority as the king of the cosmos. Do not refuse Christ who is speaking. That is the person in view here. Note what is interesting, however, here in this passage. The author of Hebrews does not simply say, do not refuse Christ who once spoke long ago. As if he were simply some bare historical figure confined and chained to the annals of history. Christ is a fully historical person. He lived, he died, he rose again. But unlike Lincoln or Churchill, who remained dead in the grave, Christ is risen. We are not simply to listen to Christ and the words he once spoke. It says, listen to Christ who is Speaking, Nor does it say, do not refuse Christ, who will one day speak at the final judgment, true as that is. In fact, this does not even, in my opinion, have to do with Christ's providential care. This is not some silent speech, as if this is some flowery way to describe uh, the way in which Christ still governs all things. No, it says, do not refuse Christ, who is Presently speaking, how is it that Christ speaks from heaven? How is it that we hear? It's the question before us. It's the question that this passage is concerned with. And Hebrews begins to tell us by bringing out a particular analogy. If you notice here in verses 25 and 26, as he continues this process of comparison that he has done throughout the whole letter, of contrasting the people of God under the new covenant versus the people of God under the old Remember our broader context going back to verse 18. The contrast between Israel at Sinai and the church at Zion. At Sinai, as Israel is brought before the mountain of the Lord, God speaks and Israel says, We cannot bear to hear anymore. Give us someone else to speak. Moses says, You are not wrong in requesting this. And so Moses speaks, the man of earth, on the Lord's behalf. And yet... Even though Moses, himself a mere human, when he speaks the words of God, Israel fails to give heed to what Moses says. Even at the base of Sinai, as Moses stands before God, what what does Israel begin to do? They begin to carouse with one another, to worship a golden calf, bowing down before an image of, of gold, saying, this is the God who has delivered us. They died in the wilderness. You know the analogy here. There's an intensification that takes place. If Israel under Moses could not escape the divine warning that came through Moses, how much more shall we escape if we refuse to hear Christ who speaks not on earth, but from heaven? Remember the broader point that we saw just a few weeks ago, beginning in verse 18. Now that Christ has ascended on high, we have a better high priest. He is the apostle of our confession. 
As the author has said in the opening portions of this letter, the one who rules and reigns and who governs his church by his very speech. One who governs by his word. So that when the church assembles on the Lord's day, we have not simply come to this local assembly. But we have, by the Spirit's power, ascended the heights of Zion to hear our King speak. And so we ask the question, how is it that Christ speaks now? He speaks through the ministry of the Word. Hebrews chapter 2, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to the things that have been heard so that we do not drift away. Christ speaks through ministers, the ministers of the word, officers appointed in his church to proclaim Christ. This is not simply us preaching or giving a nice talk about Christ. The nature of preaching is such that it is, so long as it is faithfully proclaimed according to the word of God, said to be the word of God itself. Such a high view of preaching that we have in our church tradition. You think of the second Helvetic Confession Chapter 1, that the preaching of the word is the word of God. Paul himself says this to the church of Thessalonica, that when you received us and you heard what we said, you received those things not simply as man's words, but as God's words. The sermon is not simply a bare call or a call to a, to a bare social activism, nor is it simply a moral pep talk or sentimental devotional or even an extended Bible commentary. The sermon is the means whereby Christ warns from heaven to flee the coming wrath. If Israel heard and refused, and they did not escape the judgment, how much more is it true for us if we refuse to heed the warnings of Scripture, of Christ who speaks from heaven the ministry of the word. See, the flimsiest sermon faithfully preached holds greater power than the most powerful speech uttered by mere mortals. Because this is not merely man's words, but God's words. It's not my word like a fire, the Lord says to his prophet Jeremiah. Is it not a hammer that shatters to pieces? Abraham Lincoln may have given all earth-shattering speeches, but they've never touched the heavens. Yet Christ, speaking through the preacher, shakes not only earth, but also the heavens. Here we see Hebrews cite the prophet Haggai, chapter 2. You see that here in verse 26. With the divine promise to shake both heaven and earth. A broader context for the book of Haggai it might not be a book that most people are familiar with. Within the broader context, Israel had been punished for her sins. The temple had been destroyed, the people had been scattered, but now, in the Lord's own mercy, he has drawn them back in with cords of loving kindness. And he had given the promise of a new temple to come that would surpass the glory of Solomon's temple. And the Lord says, I promise, in giving a more glorious temple to shake not only the earth but also the heavens within this context of Haggai 2 the focus is not so much on the final judgment 
I think if we think of the phrase of the shaking of heavens and earth, you think of the events that would befall the last day, and that is true. There will be a shaking of heaven and earth. But here the emphasis is on the shaking that takes place so that the nations might flock to the temple, the church of the living God. Here, Haggai attests to the growth of God's kingdom on earth. And how is it that the... What is God's kingdom visibly manifested on earth? It's the church. And how is it that the church grows? It's through the faithful ministry of the word. The word that shakes heaven and earth. So the preaching of the word is powerful. Second Corinthians chapter 4 is the reason why we had it read this morning for our New Testament lesson. It's something that is so powerful that the Apostle Paul describes it as the means of the act of the new creation. Just as God spoke and light shined into the darkness on the first day of creation, so now God speaks through his minister. The light of the gospel shines in our hearts. Something just as powerful Therefore, we should not refuse him who does speak with such power. Therefore, we should not harden our hearts to the very thing that we might grow used to. It's fascinating, isn't it, that when the Old Testament speaks of the shaking of heaven and earth, it speaks of divine deliverance from Satan's domain. You see that in Psalm 77, that the, the psalmist cries out, This is the Lord shakes the heavens of the earth and he comes to deliver his anointed Messiah. See it in 2 Samuel chapter 22. You see it also in Joel chapter 2 where the shaking of the heavens and the earth coordinates with the outpouring of the Spirit upon the people of God as the nations are drawn in and profess the King of Kings. It's the true God and Lord. Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. The shaking of heaven and earth signifies the eruption of the kingdom of God into the earthly plane. The very thing Isaiah had prophesied and promised in Isaiah chapter 2. The very thing that Daniel had prophesied in Daniel's chapter, uh, chapters 2 and 7. And it leads us to a second point concerning the nature of preaching. A faithful preaching warns of the divine judgment to come. Then faithful preaching also exposes the weak foundations of misplaced confidence. What is the preacher's task? but to call you to set your sights on that kingdom that has a more sure foundation. On that celestial city that will not pass away. It's the very thing we had seen in Hebrews chapter 11, that the testimony of the saints of old, all witnessed, all attested to the reality that there is a new world to come. Why set your hope on the treasures of Egypt? When even the reproaches of Christ are said to be of greater worth. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 26. Why take stock in the wisdom of this age when the foolishness of preaching brings an even greater wisdom? Doesn't look as flashy. 
doesn't look as glorious as the flash-in-the-pan philosophers of this day. Paul himself says that the word of the cross is the power of God, though it is despised by the sages of this world as being but mere foolishness. And yet Paul says in contrast, all that this world has to offer is nothing but vain speculation an empty deceit. The local preacher might not be as exhilarating as the latest flash-in-the-pan philosopher, the, the sassy college professor, or the superstar blogger. Even the preacher of Hebrews closes his letter begging the church to endure his word of exhortation. Think of that if this is a single written sermon. You think it would be like trying to track with that for the full 45 or 50 minutes. And yet it is the preaching of the cross that is the very power of God. It is the preaching of the cross that brings the dead to life, that exposes men in their sins, that brings to them the one who is not only willing, but one who is able to deliver. There's a lot of books and blogs you might find on relevant preaching, but I think according to this passage, preaching exposes the irrelevance of what this world deems to be lasting and important. As Christ speaks, as he speaks through his minister, the heavens and the earth are shaken. In fact, everything is shaken that can be shaken. Preaching subverts the dazzling speeches of worldly wise men. It exposes our faulty foundations. The task of the preacher is to show where our fault lines are. To call us to consider whether or not we were building our house on the rock or on sinking sand. Note the scope of what is to be shaken through Christ's speech. Verse 27, namely, it is the things that have been made. What has been made? Everything, except for God alone. So where is your confidence? Is it in the economy? Is your confidence to be found in the next presidential election or Supreme Court nomination? Is it to be found in the latest toy or gadget or job promotion? Is your confidence found in that special relationship that you think will fix everything that is wrong? All these things are things that have been made and all these things are things that will certainly pass away. All these things are things that will be shaken, and shaken for a purpose. To set your confidence on that which cannot be shaken, Christ and his heavenly kingdom. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Calvin comments on this passage, and he says this, that the Lord shakes us for this very end that he may really and forever establish us in himself. Preaching points us away from the things that are passing away and reorients our gaze on the heavenly kingdom of our precious Savior. Finally, preaching, faithful preaching, accomplishes a third task according to verses 28 and 29, and it is this, it leads us to reverent worship. 
This is really the climax of the section. And in some ways, in my opinion, I think it's the climax of the letter. Preaching is a means of grace. It is the means whereby Christ warns. It is the means whereby he exposes our misplaced confidence. And it is the means whereby he extends the promise of entrance into this unshakable kingdom. Verse 29 says, therefore let us be grateful. Quite literally, the text reads, therefore let us possess grace. Let us lay hold of this grace because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, Christ's kingdom is not contingent upon the next election. Christ will continue to save sinners. Christ will still continue to grow his church. Christ will still continue to judge the nations. And Christ will still continue to reign. Even if we don't see it yet, doesn't mean it's not a reality. More true than anything that we see on the news or in the world around us. But because Christ is king and because the promise of entering that rest still remains, we are called to worship reverently and not flippantly. Faithful preaching beckons us not only to learn more data as if the goal of us uh, or of the sermon is to win the next round of Bible Jeopardy at Trivia Night. Faithful preaching ought to direct our hearts to worship with reverence and awe, not indifference and yawn. It's God's holiness that determines our worship, not Seeker-sensitive needs, just as God is not pleased apart from faith, as we read in chapter 11, so also is he not pleased with our worship apart from reverence. No reverence, no worship. For our God is still a consuming fire. His burning holiness has not ceased to be. Again, note the intensification of what has transpired here. If Israel of old heard the warning and did not escape, how much more true is it for us who hears Christ speak from heaven if we refuse to hear him who has spoken, him who is speaking? I think many of us treat uh, the New Testament as uh, what my old uh, pastor used to call sloppy agape. Right? We're under the New Testament. It's all grace. So now we can live more lax lives. The New Testament has the exact opposite view. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. If anything, there's a greater impetus, a greater call for holiness, because now the substance has come. Now we have Christ. Not simply in shadowy types, but Christ who himself speaks through the ministry of the word. Christ who is given through the sacraments of baptism the Lord's Supper. So much of our preaching in the church today, the world around us is flippant. No wonder worship has gone the same route. I think the cure is reverent preaching leading to reverent worship. Proper preaching promotes piety. Reverence and awe at our great and holy God. There's a joy and there's a delight, of course. But it's a joy that comes with gravitas. There's a weightiness to it. Think of C.S. Lewis's old uh, uh, essay, The Weight of Glory. 
It's the very thing that the word glory means in the Old Testament. There's, that there's a weightiness to it. Something that should be reflected in the service from start to finish. It's weighty. It's not flighty. Worship ought not to reflect the passing fads of a passing age, but rather it should elicit something of the weightiness of a kingdom that is unshakable. Hebrews calls us to come boldly before the throne of grace, but it does not call us to come presumptuously. Recognizing we stand before a king who is holy and we guilty. It should cause us to tremble. And we stand before a king who has pardoned us of all of our sins, not for any works that we have done, but according to his own loving kindness. And that should cause us to rejoice and to worship with reverence and awe. It's a heavenly liturgy that the church has been given in this day and age. Israel refused him who spoke on earth. Shall we do the same with him who has spoken from heaven? Our society can barely handle a mild pandemic. Do you really think it can navigate the coming wrath? Now that Christ has come, there's an intensification of the church's call to holiness. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord your God. Calls for us to take sin seriously. That we would recognize it better to have or to enter heaven-maimed, as Christ says, than to continue indulging in secret lusts. Peter puts it like this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, speaking of this passing age, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, for a land in which righteousness dwells. Beloved, hear your Savior as he speaks from heaven, and set your hope on the promise given. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Savior who speaks. We ask that you would strengthen and bless the pulpits throughout the world, that your people may hear your Savior as he speaks from heaven. Strengthen our hearts, we pray, and feed us with the heavenly manna as we prepare for the days ahead. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand.